0: Well, we have, um, we have been slowly working our way through the book of Exodus, if you've been with us this semester, or if this is your first time, this is kind of what we've been doing in RUF, and so uh, on your sheet there is the passage where we find ourselves next in the book of Exodus, we're in chapter 4, if you have a Bible you can turn there and look. Um, I'm going to read it here in a second, but we've, I've tried to s- explain to this every single week and sort of pitch at you that the book of Exodus tells you two things at the same time. On the one hand, it tells you the true story of what happened like back then with like Israel and Pharaoh and all that kind of stuff. But the bigger story that it's telling is is really is the story of the universe. It's your story, whether or not you even knew it. It's a story that you were born into slavery, and it's a story, hopefully, that some of you have been liberated out of. And we'll continue to unpack what that means as we go. But with that in mind, um, let me just go ahead and jump in to Exodus chapter 4, verse 18, and we'll read this. Um, little, this, this passage here, and then chat about it. It says this, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, hello, and said to him, please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt, for all the men who were seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt, and Moses took the staff of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back to Egypt, see that you you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So we let him alone. It was then that she said, a bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord which, with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses, and he did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. This is God's word for us um, tonight. Let's pray before we jump in, okay? Let's pray. Um, Father, we ask that you would be particularly gracious with us tonight. Father, this is a really hard um, passage and... We, we always know when we come before your word that we're dependent upon your spirit's help to teach us and guide us, and we feel that especially uh, tonight. I feel that especially tonight. So um, will you be particularly gracious to me and speak through me and to me and despite me? And I pray that your word would go forth and pierce hearts that need to be pierced and give life where there needs to be life. Encourage us, comfort us, convict us, Convert us. We would pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, one of the most um, stressed out experiences of my life, I'd have to say, is when I watched the movie Argo. You've seen this movie. For the entire two hours that I watched it, Two whatever it is, two hours, two and a half hours, long. the whole time that I'm watching this movie, I'm l- literally on the edge of my seat, grabbing my knees, teeth-clenched, heart-racing. I think, I think I probably shaved off five years of my lifespan just by watching that movie, just the stress that it induced. But it was an amazing movie, incredibly suspenseful, wonderful movie. If you haven't seen the movie, let me just familiarize you with the basic plot. The plot is, a, is telling a true story of what happened in the 1980 crisis in uh, Iran. Iran? Iran? However you say that. Iran? Iran. We're going to go with Iran. And um, uh, so what happens is the, the U.S. embassy there was overtaken by the, um, the, the local Iranians. And um, so, so they took over the embassy, and six Americans were able to escape and survive, of which they went into hiding. And they were hiding at this other embassy's guy's house. And so the, basically the whole country was basically looking for them, trying to get them. And if they had found them, they would have killed them. There was no way for them to escape. They couldn't just walk out of the country. They couldn't drive out of the country. They couldn't fly out of the country. They were wanted by everybody. And so the time was ticking before, essentially, they were discovered, found, and if they were found, they would have been theoretically murdered. So the CIA back in America is strategizing and plotting: how are we going to get them out? And the Ben Affleck character decides that he's going to fly over by himself and single-handedly rescue these six Americans from hiding. And the whole plan is, if you've seen this, this is unbelievable, this is a true story, but the whole plan is that he's going to go over there, and their whole thing is that they're going to pose as Hollywood producers on a location scout for an upcoming movie. So he flies over there, meets up with the six Americans that are in hiding, and he hands them each this massive folder of their new identity. And he says, read this, memorize this. And then what he does is, you know, at first all the six guys are like, what is this? Like, I I don't understand. What what is this new identity that you're giving me? And the Ben Affleck character says, look, you have to be so familiar with this character that that you are, this new identity that I'm giving you. Because when you go through the airport here in a couple of days and they interrogate you and they are going to ask you questions and you cannot hesitate with the answers, you have to know yourself. You have to know this new identity all the way down to the bottom, so deeply, if you're ever going to make it out of here alive. I won't spoil the ending. They get out alive, and so, um, so here's what here's, here's what basically happens. Here's why I'm bringing that up. The whole the whole strategy is. If you want to make it out of here alive, you have to deeply know your new identity. And the reason I bring that up is because that is the exact same situation with you and with me. If you want to make it through life, if you want to make it out of here alive, as it were, you have to deeply know your new identity. And what I mean by new identity, I mean the identity that is given to you by God's grace. And what this passage does is it really does kind of, unpack and explore for us what that new identity is in a lot of detail. And there's so much that we could talk about here, but I really, I want to talk about three features of this new God-given identity for those that are in Christ, okay? So here they are. I'll just lay it out to give you a roadmap. We're going to look at the nature of this new identity, the origin of the new identity, and the cost of this new identity, okay? So we'll just tick through these one at a time. Here's the first one the nature of this new identity. And just to cite my sources, just to put a footnote here, I'm getting a lot of help from um, two of my close personal friends, Brian sorgan and Tim Keller. So um, if you look at the passage, the passage begins with Moses about to go confront Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the people of Egypt, just to kind of give you a little context here, have bitterly oppressed the people of Israel for 400 years trying to basically brainwash them into thinking that their identity is that of slave. And so, so look at what happens. Look at verse 22 and 23. The, I, I kind of picture this scene like God and Moses in the locker room before the big game and God sort of trying to psych Moses up for what's about to happen because God's about to send Moses on a mission to directly confront the most powerful man in the country, in the region, maybe in the world, I don't know. Look at Verse 22. This is, what, this is the message that, Moses, that God is giving Moses, verse 22. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. Here's what God is doing. God is pronouncing that his people, their identity is that of firstborn son. Now just let that sink in for a second because what God is doing is he's putting himself in the role of a father saying, I'm going to go get my son out of slavery. He's using all this intimate family imagery. And so really, okay, the question then becomes, okay, but what does it mean to be a son of God? What does it mean to be a child of God? What is the nature of that identity? If that's the identity that God's pronouncing on it, what's the nature of it? What's the essence of it? And I really do think that it's helpful to understand that by way of comparison. if you want to understand what it's like to be a son in a family relationship, you have to understand the contrast, what it's like to be a slave. So let's just kind of compare the master-slave relationship with a father-son relationship real quick, okay? A slave's relationship to a master is first and foremost a business relationship. A slave's relationship to his master is a business relationship. It's all about what the slave can provide for the slave master. A son's relationship to his father It's not a business relationship. It's a family relationship. It's not about what I provide for you. It's about what I am for you, what I am to you. So you have a business relationship over here, and you've got a family relationship over here. But for a slave, you have to realize the basis and the nature of a slave's identity is that of performance. You have to keep performing. That is the thing that keeps your relationship intact. If you stop performing, then the relationship either is threatened or terminated. And I think it's helpful to compare these two when you think about the way that people interact with spirituality. Because there are a ton of people, maybe some of you here in this room, that have rejected Christianity because you assume that it's the slave-master slave dynamic. It's a business relationship that is primarily performance-driven. If you just perform enough, then maybe God will get you into heaven or something. In fact, there's probably a lot of you that would identify yourselves as Christians that while you would never like articulate that out loud, like never write that down on a test and say, yeah, I actually believe that. If we looked closer at your life, your life would show that you actually do deeply believe that. Meaning that your whole life is driven entirely by your performance, by what you do. And you, you understand your relationship with God to be based on what you provide for him, what you do for him. And if you think about it, this is why Christianity for you feels so competitive, where you really do feel like if my value as a person is wrapped up in my performance, then I have to get those that I think are above me, below me. This is probably why um, uh, you're, you're actually pretty critical of other people and complain about other people a lot. Because if you find a flaw or a failure in somebody else, maybe if you, even it 's a close friend, you kind of have that inner sense that it, that it 's um, deliciously satisfying to see somebody else screw up and in fact, you, you may even love talking about the way that they 've screwed up around your friends because when you t- when you get somebody below you, it makes you feel better about yourself because you 're on top it 's competitive, and this may also be why um, you're constantly comparing yourself to other people. Where your whole way of looking at the world is by comparing yourself and sizing yourself up to other people, their looks. How do you size up to their looks? How do you size up to their success, to their achievements, to their money, to their popularity, to their body, to their spiritual progress, to their whatever? Your life is driven by performance and comparison. And actually, if you go a step deeper, mean this is where it actually gets really convicting for me, Um, if you go a step deeper, this is why you're unbelievably defensive. If someone is to point out and expose a flaw of yours, a failure of yours, sin in you, there is this inner lawyer that gets activated that has to defend it and excuse it and get rid of it. Because If your identity is wrapped up in your performance and someone critiques your performance, then they they are getting very close to the bullseye of your heart. And who you are as a person is in jeopardy. And so you'll do anything you can to get out from under the accusation. So you'll deny it. You'll make excuses about it. You'll blame it on, you know, your roommate or a bad day or you know, stress or professor or the weather or whatever. You'll make excuses. You'll blame shift. You'll lie about it. You'll cover it up. And if in a certain situation where someone kind of can see a failure of yours, a flaw of yours, and you can't get out from under it, and you really are exposed, If you are living like a slave, it will crush you. You will will fall quickly into depression. You will be hammered by your own self-hatred because someone has seen that your performance is not good enough. And if your identity is wrapped up in your performance, then you self-destruct as a person. This may also be why if you think about your joy in life, it feels like your joy is like withering and like rotting as a person. Because if you, if you think about it, I mean, how do, you know, when, when you have a job and you get a paycheck at the end of the month or two weeks or whatever, are you ever just, you know, surprised and shocked with a sense of wonder that you're getting this paycheck? No, it's it's yours by right. You earned it. So there's no joy in getting it. You're just getting what is due to you that's how slaves live there's no there's no sense of wonder there's no joy there's competition there's insecurity and i'm afraid that's how most of us live that's how that's how often i live a lot of my life but if you if you compare it to that of a child a child that actually understands and rests in the love of their father compared to an employee how do how do children instead of getting a paycheck how do children open like awesome Christmas presents, right? I mean, you've seen like the YouTube videos where they like freak out and they're like shocked and so blown away because a a child knows that his relationship is a family relationship. It's not about what the child provides for their father. It's about who the child is for the father. So the performance is gone. And if you think about it, if you think about the implications of that, if you're a child, if you're living in light of the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God, One of the implications of that is that this means that you can actually feel happy for other people. You know, when when someone else is successful, has a success, has an accomplishment, does something well, maybe even an area that you wanted, you can actually celebrate with them and be happy for them and with them because you don't feel threatened by them. You're freed to actually just love them and serve them and celebrate and enjoy their humor or their beauty or their accomplishments or their whatever. They're they're not a threat to you. You're free to actually love them and celebrate with them. And someone who is um, a child and lives like a child does not feel the need to constantly be right. You know, if you're a slave and your performance is tied to your identity, you always have to be right. But if you're a child, you're free to admit when you're wrong. You're free to not always have to defend the fact that you're always right all the time. You can admit when you've screwed up. You can admit when you've blown it. And your failures don't send you running to shame and to depression. They actually send you run into the arms of your father. You know, having your sin exposed only drives you deeper into worship, not farther away from it. A, a child really is free to not have to keep up sort of the performance, you know what I'm talking about? That sophisticated PR campaign that we all play, on, especially on social media, of look how perfect and awesome I am. A child's just free to be authentic and real and messy and okay with that. So you see the nature of, the, of this identity? It's, it's, it's radically different from what most people think Christianity really is. But this is actually setting forth the nature of your identity. If you are in Christ, is that you are son, Daughter, child, not slave. Okay, but it, goes a little, it actually goes a step deeper. So look at the second thing with me. That's the nature of your identity. Let's look at the origin of your identity. In, in other words, where does it start? How does, it, where do, how does this thing kind of get jump-started? How does this relationship get initiated in this story? Well, if you look at the, if you look at the story, God just pronounces it. He just says, this is the way that it is. These are my, these are my, this is my firstborn son. He just pronounces it. They did nothing to earn it. They they merited nothing to receive this. God just says it is so, and therefore it is so. And so what this tells you is that they have an identity that is one of unbelievable privilege, but it is rooted entirely in grace. They did nothing to earn it. They did nothing to contribute to make it happen. It just... Is the way that it is. I mean, think about your relationship with your parents. Um, Assuming that you were born to your parents, what what did you do to get into that relationship? Did you buy your way in? Did you earn your way in? No, No, you just showed up, and you're in. And that's kind of the way it works with God as well. You can't buy your way in. You can't work your way in with your goodness. You can't sort of manipulate your way in. It just sort of happens to you. You're in, whether or not you knew it or not. And so... If he is the origin of the relationship, think about this. If he's the one that starts the relationship, then he is the one that decides when the relationship ends. If he's the one that starts it, he's the one that tells us when it's over. And what does the Bible say over and over and over? It will never end. That his love endures forever. It says that over and over and over. If he's the one that jump-started this, he's the one that gets to say when it's going to end, and he's going to say, it will never end. No one can ever snatch you out of my hands. If you did nothing to earn your way in, then you can do nothing bad to blow your way out, if that makes sense. If your merits don't get you in, then your demerits don't get you out. And that gives you unbelievable security. I mean, think of, well, my wife and I, who's here tonight, um, we have a three-year-old daughter, Zoe Kate. Some of y'all have met her. If you haven't met her, you're totally missing out because she's awesome. But she's crazy she is a firecracker of a little child i mean she she is so much fun but she's she's literally insane and so she gets in, she, she's not she's not literally insane she she is just spunky and fun that's what I mean so um, which means especially at this age she just gets in trouble a lot and you know just she's you know pretty stubborn and defiant and Super fun, but she gets in trouble a lot. And so this happens pretty occasionally. This happened yesterday at our house where uh, we had to exert parental authority and punish her, which usually looks like a timeout or a spanking. And so yesterday I, I had to spank her. And so after it's over, my wife and I, we always have this sort of ritual, this thing that we kind of talk through after she gets in trouble. And so the way that it goes is we, we you know, once she's done with it, we, we kind of get eye level with her and we say, Zoe, Kate, what did you do? And we make her articulate, I, you know, I disobeyed or I hit my brother or whatever. And then we say, okay, well, what do you have to say about that? And then, she's, then she says, you know, I'm sorry. And then we really do have the unbelievable privilege of looking at her and saying, I love you and I forgive you. And then one of the things that I've started saying to her is, okay, I want you to understand, I love you when you are being good and i love you when you are being bad i love you cuz you're cuz you're mine it has it's not about what you do it's because you're mine that's why this relationship is what it is because i want her to have this i want her to be instilled with this reality that when she is bad Her mom or her dad's love for her doesn't evaporate and get replaced by anger or disappointment. And then the way that she gets the love back is when she starts performing again and starts being good and and obeying. I want her to know beyond a shadow of doubt that our love is unconditional, contra-conditional. And it's the same way um, with our relationship with the Lord. And if you think about, if you honestly believe that, if that was not just sort of like a theological, like, yeah, 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 I, I, okay, I checked that box. But if, if you let that sink in, can you imagine what that would do to your insecurities? But how that would affect you at a personal level? Because if you think about a, a, a slave is always insecure. A child should never be insecure. But a slave is always insecure because they're always looking over their back. They're always checking to see if their slave master is monitoring their behavior. If they're just going to screw up one more time, there's going to be the, the final straw that's going to break the camel's back. Always worried, I haven't done enough, I haven't read enough, I haven't prayed enough, I haven't shared the gospel enough, I haven't volunteered enough, I should be farther along. All insecurity, all worry, but a child knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, I, I, I can rest, even when I'm messy, even when I'm defiant, even when I'm stubborn, even when I'm disobedient, I can rest in the reality that I'm secure in his love. And so speaking of our daughter, one of the things that we often, has kind of gotten a lot of... Um, Attention, uh, or a lot of a lot of airtime. In our house is the movie Toy Story Two. Don't I will not spoil this plot for you. So, but but at the beginning of the movie, Toy Story Two, Woody, the cowboy, is about to go to cowboy camp with his owner, you know, the boy Andy. And um, Andy's not in the room, and Woody is freaking out, and he's running around because he can't find his cowboy hat. And if he can't find his cowboy hat, then Andy's not going to take him to cowboy camp with him, which is a huge highlight for, for Woody, apparently. So Bo Peep, the little doll, Bo Peep comes up to Woody and says, Woody, look under your boot. And Woody's like, it's, my hat's not under my boot. I know. I've looked everywhere. It's not under my boot. That's stupid. And she, just, she insists that he looks under his boot. And so he looks and he says, see, it's not under my boot. But when he does that, you can see that on the underside of his boot is scribbled in marker the word Andy. And her point is, look, your maker has marked you. You are his. And if you just stopped and thought about that, that should erode your anxiety and your worry, Woody. And if you translate that to your relationship with God, God has most definitely marked his people. And put on them, mine. You are mine. And if you think about that, I really do think that should erode your anxiety and your worry at some level, because you really are secure in the fact that you're his. He's the one that started this relationship, he's the one that says it's gonna end, and when it ends is not based on your performance. That's really good news. Okay, let's go one step deeper. Third feature of this new identity. We've looked at the nature of this identity, the origin of it. Lastly, the cost of this identity. And, and man, I don't know if you picked up on this when I read it, but, but where I'm going to draw from, or if you can make sense of these three really bizarre verses, I, I think this will unlock some really beautiful things, but the verses are 24 through 26. I'm just going to read it again, just to make everyone uncomfortable. It says this, at a lodging place on the way... The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it, and said, Surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then that she said, A bridegroom of blood, because of the circumcision. So here's kind of here's a brief snapshot of what's going on. And I'll just tell you on the front end, this, these are probably this is probably the hardest passage in the whole book of Exodus, and there's a lot of different people that have disagreed and fought over this, so what I'm going to offer you is my humble guess as to what's going on here. But I really do think I'm right, and I really do think that there's some beautiful stuff going on if you can kind of trek with me. Here's what's going on. So remember, Moses and his family are about to head back to Egypt to go confront Pharaoh with this message that God has just given them, okay? On their way there, God intercepts them and stops them and says, i got to kill somebody of y'all's family. Zipporah, who was Moses' wife, says, okay, hold on. I'm going to, I shouldn't do hand motions. I'm going to, um, I'm going to circumcise my son. And once blood is spilt, God looks at the situation and says, okay, cool. I'm not going to kill anybody and like leaves them alone. And you, you read that, and you're kind of like, you know, WTH, what's going, on with, um, what's going on with that story? So here's what I think is going on. We've got to keep it PG-13 up in here. <laughs> um, if you would, I'm going to get technical for like two minutes. Come with me into technical land, and then we'll come out. So we're coming into technical land. Um, who is God trying to kill in this passage? Well, uh, you need to know that the Hebrew word for Moses is nowhere in these three verses. When you see the name Moses in your handout or in your Bible, that, that, is, the, that is the translators making an interpretive decision to try to smooth out the English. Because there is no word Moses in the Hebrew. It's just the word he. So the, then the question is, okay, well, then who's the he that God shows up and says, I need to kill? Well, the he... I don't think is Moses, and I'm going to try to argue for you, that it's Moses' firstborn son, whose name you find out earlier in the book of Exodus is Gershom. And so, when, so then Zipporah, the wife, circumcises this kid and pacifies God's desire to kind of want to kill this guy. But okay, the, the reason most people assume that it's Moses that God's trying to kill is because Zipporah, his wife, uses that word, surely you're a bridegroom of blood to me. And so we just assume because she says bridegroom, she's talking about her husband. But that word, again, in Hebrew, we're still in technical land, Hebrew uh, doesn't mean bridegroom specifically. It just means covenant relative. In fact, if you look at verse 18, that's the same word that's used to describe Moses' father-in-law. So It just means relative. Okay, we're coming out of technical land, and let me just explain to you, if you're tracking with me, here's what I think all this means. This means... As Moses is going to confront Pharaoh to release God's firstborn son, Israel, God threatens Moses' firstborn son, but he stops when there's blood that is shed. That still raises the million-dollar question, okay, why? Why? Like, what in the world? Why? Here's why. I think that this is teaching us the lesson. It's teaching Moses, and it's teaching us that if there is going to be a new family, there is going to be cost involved. If there's going to be a new family, it comes at a price. So think about it this way. Moses is God's representative. He's basically dressing up as God, if I can even put it that way, and going up to Pharaoh with God's message. And in order for God to redeem his people, a firstborn son must have blood that is spilt. Put it this way: If God's going to redeem His people, that means that God's firstborn son must have blood that is spilt. Actually, as we unpack the Book of Exodus, this will become a lot clearer later on. But what is this? Okay, but then this raises the question: At this point, who then is God's firstborn son? Of course, okay. If you if you fast forward centuries later, the New Testament goes to. Painful links to communicate to you that Jesus Christ is God's firstborn son. The opening passages in the book of Matthew are all about quoting Old Testament passages saying, Jesus is the son, Jesus is the son, Jesus is the son. In fact, if you, if you um, look at Jesus' baptism, you hear an audible voice from heaven saying, from God, this is my firstborn son. And as Jesus is walking around and doing his ministry, he's always referring to God as his father which feels normal for us, but no one ever spoke like this in the first century. It would, have seen, it would have been seen as sacrilegious. It would have been seen as irreverent. Jesus is always referring to God as his father to communicate the father and the son in this unique relationship. But the only time that Jesus did not refer to God as father is at the cross. Because at the cross, he doesn't refer to him as father. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" it really does raise this curious question, okay, what's going on then? If at the cross Jesus is dying, what is happening is that he is being thrown out of God's family so that you and I could be brought in. He is being cut off. He, his blood is being shed. He's being thrown out of the family so that you and I could be called sons and daughters of God. His blood is being spilled, and underneath the shelter of his blood we find protection, and security. And so, look at what the people of Israel do. Verse 31, it says that Moses explained everything to them, and the people believed. And then they launch into worship. That's how, this, that's how this passage ends. They launch into worship. See, this new identity that we've been talking about is not something that everyone just has. It's not something everyone in this room has. The way that you get it, the Bible says, is that you believe. You put your faith in him, which basically is incredibly good news because it means you don't have to work harder, you don't have to perfect yourself, you don't have to create this long list of rules for you to obey in order to get in with his presence. All it means is that you just throw yourself at his mercy and he receives you. You stake your claim in him and he receives you. And by faith, you become sons and daughters of the king. And that really should, when that gets trickled down into your soul, explode your life into worship, just like the people of Israel. And so if you think about it, this is, if you're a Christian tonight, this is your story, that you were purchased by the blood of the king to be his, to be marked as his forever. And so I want to end with this. Um, I'll land the plan here. Uh, Over winter break, I watched for the first time the show American Pickers, Never seen American Pickers before. I was with my dad and we watched this episode. And if you're unfamiliar with the show, it's these two guys, or I guess this particular episode is these two guys that are, they run around all over the country and like dig through people's garbage to try to find sort of hidden treasures or like um, overlooked expensive antiques. And the episode that we watched, they found this old upright base, this old beat up base that the owner of the base said that it originally belonged to Bill Black, who, I don't know who that that was either. Bill Black was the original bassist for Elvis Presley. So these two guys are really intrigued by this, and they bid on it, and they buy this bass, and then the whole rest of the episode is figuring out the story behind the bass, because the value of this thing totally was determined by its story. If it's just an old, crappy, beat-up base, it's kind of worthless. But if this actually is the original base of Bill Black, it's incredibly valuable. So the value of the thing came down to the story. And the same is true for you. If you're in Christ, your story is that you are owned by the king of the universe, that he has marked you, that you are his, that you are so valuable in his eyes. He was willing to give up his own son in order to get you. And I really do, it is my prayer and is my hope that tonight that you would be deeply, deeply encouraged by that reality. That that would bid your anxious fears goodbye. That would erode your anxieties. That would liberate you from the performance slavery. That that would flood your heart with gratitude and with warmth and with joy, and with worship, and with meaning, and purpose, and that you would live life differently, as a child, not as a slave, because you have been marked by the king, purchased by the blood of the king. And if that's not you, if that's not yet your identity, I just want to tell you, it's free for the taking. It can be yours. So that's an invitation for you tonight. Father, would you flood our hearts with, an, with just an incredible security, even as we sing tonight that the, these glorified saints in heaven may be more happy than us, but they are no more secure than us. And I pray that that would radically transform us, change us, to know that we are loved by a gracious, covenantally faithful Father who is willing to give up his own son in order to possess us. Would that change us? Would that move us? Would that melt us? We pray all this in Jesus' name.